guys, we have a really exciting announcement and we just wanted to tell you guys as the very first thing. Like, we just jumped right into it. Yeah, in our notes, we we kind of had it written down in a couple minutes and we are like, uh, no, I don't, I'm sorry, I have to, I, this is how we have to start it. As we told you guys, for the month of June, we were going to donate all of our Patreon proceeds, and then Tyler and I go- were going to double that to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Well, the numbers are in, and you guys, this is huge. We donated $600 to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Oh my god. $600, y'all. I am blown away that is amazing and i am just so thankful for all of y'all that donated that supported us on patreon that we were able to do this and have this kind of impact you guys this money is going to make a difference and the generosity that's involved in this it's so so much appreciated and we got your messages we've heard from you and we're so excited to be able to donate this amount and I want to thank some of our amazing Patreoners that joined us during June. Miranda Rays and Jamie Miller, who are our newest Chardonnay Syndicate members. And Jessica Mason, who is our newest Merlot Mafia member. Thank you all so much. And thank you so much to everyone who contributed to this. But we are so excited to have the three of y'all join the Blood and Wine family. And it is so great to have y'all. Hope y'all are enjoying the murder minis and everything on Patreon. Yes, welcome to the fam. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And And this is Blood and Wine. Yes, and we kind of, I guess, jumped the gun a little bit, but we were very excited to announce everything. Yeah. So, but yes, this is who we are. <laughs> and this is who you're listening to. <laughs> we're we're a podcast um, every week. It's a, it's a true crime and wine podcast, in case you didn't get that from the name. That is what this is. I mean, I imagine if you're on episode 113, there's, there's a chance you might have... This might not be your first one, but if it is, we are so happy that you chose this one. Hi, welcome. I think it's going to be a great one. Uh, we love to have y'all, but I, I assume for many of y'all, 113 is not like, oh, that's the one I'm going to start on. Sounds like a good number. It's not like 13, so it's not super unlucky, but like 13's in there because it's like murder and stuff. So it's like a little bit unlucky. I don't know. 13's Taylor Swift's favorite number, so... I know, and I hate that I know that because everyone knows that, and it's just like a thing, and she's like changing the number 13, and it's like, girl, stop, it's just a number, but hey. I, I don't know. I I never got the favorite numbers thing. Numbers are numbers. Yeah. Also, I'm like, what What if your favorite number, you're like, oh, God, it's 641,219. That is my <laughs> shit. That's my favorite number. But also, I feel like a lot of people have 13 as their favorite number. And sorry for any listeners, if you're like, my favorite number is 13. I'm going to read you for a sec. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's a, a lot of people that are like, I'm quirky and different. It's unlucky. Well, it's my favorite number. I feel like a lot of people whose favorite number is 13 wrote a lot in high school and wore a lot of black, and I'm describing myself. And <laughs> Also Taylor Swift, though. <gasps> oh my god. Am I Taylor Swift? No. <sighs> You're right. <laughs> but I will say, if God, I wish I could wear crop tops so bad. Like, 
Will Smith, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, him wearing, like, 90s crop tops. I'm like, oh, okay. damn, if I had abs, y'all, I'd be cropping it all damn day. Yeah, no, you totally would, though. Crop tops and then, like, short, like, 80s running shorts. Everything would be neon and pastel. Damn, I'd be a fashion god, y'all. Do you want to live in, like, Saved by the Bell? Because they had a lot of neon. Honestly, kinda. You don't want to live don't. in Saved by the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, Zach Morris, oof, one of my like earliest awakenings of like, oh, hello, sexual awakening. Yeah, we all have that. Anyway, I feel like Zach Morris was that for a lot of people. I was about to say yes. he was probably <laughs> definitely. I was like, was he mine? He was probably one of them. This is kind of awkward. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just gonna jump right into the topic of this fine episode. Are you ready? Yes. I am ready. Tell me. What is our topic? I already know it, but they don't. This was my week to pick the topic. And so I decided to go with something that could be taken in multiple different ways, because you know how I do. But this week, we're going to be talking about missing pieces, whether that be the obvious or the not so obvious. A lot of the times when there is a murder, not all the pieces are there. So physically or... uh... I guess, metaphysically? Or mentally. Mentally, yeah. I think that's more than where I was going. <laughs> metaphysically? <laughs> I don't know. Tangibly is... and intangibly. Are we going to break the fourth wall or something? What's happening here? This is a podcast. I'm pretty sure all we do is break the fourth wall. We just spent the first, <laughs> like, eight minutes or however far we are talking to our listeners, so. I guess that is what we do. Hey, guys. hey guys we're breaking the fourth wall i'm not drinking yet i promise (laughs) um no but um like you know i'm ready to drink yeah i mean so if we could just like hop right into that um tyler what uh what wine are you doing this week so the wine i'm drinking today it is another barefoot wine and i do have two reasons for that um so first off i did barefoot in episode 111 two weeks ago Uh, That was our episode, Riots, Language of the Unheard. And I wanted to do Barefoot because my case was the Stonewall Riots. Barefoot's always been a huge supporter of the LGBTQ community. And so I was like, oh, yeah. Well, Barefoot was hard to find, and I definitely waited to the last minute. And my Walgreens had a Pinot Grigio, which is not my go-to wine. But you ended up liking it more than you thought you would. Yeah, I mean, all in all, it was a solid Pinot Grigio. It was a good wine. But generally, I like to kind of make my opinions on wine brands by their reds. Usually they're cabs, because, I don't know. It's what you that's do. That's like my go-to. Yeah. And so I was like, I want a, I want a red barefoot. My other reason being that I got a lot of positive feedback, people being like, ooh, I see this wine everywhere. I know it's cheap as shit, but I never get it because it's super cheap. I assumed it's awful. So I was like, you know what? Yeah. Because same. I always see the same brands of wine that are like two, three dollars. Nothing's two dollars unless you're a Trader Joe's. (laughs) That are like four to six dollars that I'm like, I don't need two vines or whatever. I don't know if that's an actual wine or not. And so I was like, hmm, you know what? Yeah. Also, Mama gave this one to me for free. So there's a secret third reason for that. <laughs> oh, um, my God. I remember seeing that wine in her pantry. 
Mama is not a fan of Barefoot, but I liked the Pinot Grigio, so I was like, yeah, I'll take this one. Uh, so I saved it for the episode, and it is the Barefoot Rich Red Blend. I like red blends pretty well. Brittany just made a face because she does not like red blends. Well, don't speak so quickly. But I'm excited to see what this one tastes like, because for me, most of the time a red blend is pretty pretty cabby. But on the bottle, they describe this one as a red wine with flavors of dark berries and vanilla. Hints of caramel and oak create a smooth finish that you'll love. Barefoot Rich Red Blend pairs perfectly with anything from your grill. Simply put, plays well with others. XOXO. I don't know why I went... Barefoot. So, yeah. uh, I mean, it sounds like a typical red blend. I have no idea what it is, blend-wise. I don't know. But it won some type of double gold. There's some sticker... Yeah, it won the double gold in the 2016 Tasters Guild 29th Annual International Wine Judging for consistent quality and proven value. Absolutely sounded like an Olympic competition for wine. Uh, I mean, kind of. But yeah, so with that, I was like, "Mm, let's see what the people think. Let's ask the people. Also... Um, one thing I wanted to ask as I was reading it, and then I kept reading, do y'all say caramel or caramel? Caramel. I say caramel. I mean, we say caramel. We're from the South. Or if there's a weird third way, if there's like, uh, I say caramel. And I'm like, oh shit, okay. That's a way to say it. Well, that's, that's how you say it when you've got it stuck in your teeth. (laughs) No, that's what you say when you tried swallowing it, but it like... (laughs) is still in your mouth, and you're like, oh, I'm joking. It's cotton Uh Yes. <laughs> oh, God, don't... Uh, y'all watch out for those Werther's. It's not Werther's. Werther's are hard candies. I don't know. Anywho, I'm gonna read reviews. I obviously need this wine. Clearly. You thought Werther's were the same as, like, I don't know, a caramel apple. No, I'm thinking those little soft-ass squares. You know what? I bet you Werther's Candy Company makes soft caramels. Probably. Listeners, tell me. <laughs> make, make, prove me right. Will someone please uh, send this old man some Werther's? That's actually what he's asking you right now. Listen, Werther's hard candies are my shit. I, <laughs> I fuck up some old people candy. Like those grandma strawberry candies are actually my favorite candy in the world. The ones that are like in the wrapper that makes it look like a little strawberry that have the goo in the middle. Okay, <sighs> but last question. What about the butterscotch ones that are wrapped in the yellow, like, you know, they look like peppermints, but they're butterscotch. You love them, don't yeah. you? Yeah, those are Werther's. No, those are, are not. Are they not? No. Well, I'm talking like the ones that are literally like oh, a round. candy. Yeah. yeah. Werther's are an oval shaped with kind of like a little dip in the middle. Yeah. I'm not yeah. talking about that. I'm talking oh. about ones that are just a full on circle with the yellow paper that's wrapped around the edges like a peppermint. It's like shiny yellow gold. And it's butterscotch. Just take oh. take a moment. You know what I'm talking about here. Yes, 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 yes. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I I fuck with that. Someone, you know what? You're that kid that at Halloween is really excited about the reject candy that's left in the bowl. Not necessarily, because if you give me black licorice, I'll set myself on fire. (laughs) Or those like little nasty ass chalk Valentine heart things. Those are the worst thing in the world. Those taste like Um, nothing. It's just like. But I am the person who would trade a pack of Reese's for like a thing of Smarties. But that's because I think Reese's are vile. Reese's? Reese's. 
I'm going to jump back into my wine and talk about the reviews I found. Do we want to call Hershey and ask? Hershey, how do you pronounce your son's name? Reese or Reese? Sorry. Yes. Tell me about your wine. What did the people say? Uh, So I found three different reviews. Uh, The first one, they gave it four out of five stars. And they said, on the nose, it gives a slightly stingy alcohol notes. Might be some floral notes. And then some blackberry spice flavor from the oak, I think. On the palate, it's an off-dry, full-body, high-tannin, medium-plus acidity wine. Those were all said with slashes. Um, (laughs) With dominating jammy blackberry, prune-fruity aromas. Also, dominating jammy blackberry. Hi, is he single? Following by some vanilla and spice flavor. Its finishing is somehow quite long. 15 to 17 seconds, which, damn, that is a long finish. Um, And overall, this is a great entry for anyone who's afraid of red wine or who wants an easygoing and happy wine. So this wine's easygoing and happy. That's good. But he's a quick finisher. No, he's he's a a long finish. Well, he's dominating. He finishes in 15 to 17 (laughs) seconds. This reviewer doesn't know a long finish. Anywho, second review. They gave it one and a half stars and said... Good for big groups when volume is needed. That's it. And I'm like, hmm, okay. We got we got a couple sides of the spectrum. Uh, so I went for one in the middle that gave it uh, 3.5 stars. And they said it was tasty and delicious of fruity plum, black cherry, dark fruit, black currant, and huckleberry. Bold. Oh, they didn't use any periods in this review. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bold, full body, and succulent fruit source on palate. Vanilla, soft, caramel, and bit ash chalk, pepper on tongue, yet balanced and soft, leathery aftertaste with cherry, blackberry, all fruity side. For every day's red, this is good and nice. Thank you. Next. Um, did Ari? That... <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually just sounds like someone was like, I'm going to write every single red wine tasting note that i've ever heard and just list them all out i know and then end it with ariana grande so i don't know what i'm about to drink but that was a lot of words and i did not know i thought i would be able to be like oh these are where the periods go no no i didn't but uh anyway i'm gonna open her up open it up um your corkscrew's making some bad sounds that wasn't the corkscrew that was the cork that just did that little pop that Kind of sounded like when you pop your bones in your shoulder. That oh. was the cork. It's a bone cork. Oh, yeah, those are rare. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Barefoot wants you to understand the impact you have on the earth uh, by, like, using all the cork trees. So they're like, yeah, it's like we use your own bones. So that's what they did. They didn't. Please, please don't at me, Barefoot Wine Co. Uh, anyway, I'm going to open this. It, it is not a real cork, though. It, it's one of those, like... It's like plasticky, plastic. foamy ones. Yeah. yeah. Let's see if it pops. Yes, it does. It <laughs> I'm glad I uh, had a had a good handle on the bottle because. <laughs> oh no. I could have spilled it all over my white carpet and my white mattress behind <laughs> me. <laughs> like like that one time. Yes. <laughs> oh shit! That's dark. That is really dark. <laughs> Us talking about our cases. <laughs> <laughs> so i will say i did let this sit in the fridge too long so it's a bit cold so i might not be able to get as much smells from it 
I see what they mean by the like slightly stingy alcohol notes because yeah. <laughs> Is your nose bleeding? Uh no, not yet. Um oh shit, but I'm spilling. Let's let yours kind of cool off a little bit. Warm yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not getting much uh I mean I guess some fruity notes. I I don't know, but yeah, we'll let mine breathe come come up in temp. Uh what are you drinking? Well, I actually decided to pull a Tyler. And it's funny that you're like, Brittany doesn't like red blends because I'm doing the original House Wines original red blend. And I mean, I kind of figured when I said that and you were like, uh, not always. Yeah, I know. Because I was like, mm, okay, you about to tell us about a red blend you love? No, that I'm trying. Let's not talk about love here. This is like, <laughs> we just met. Let's not talk about love. This is a one night stand. <laughs> I mean, I bought a box, so it's a little bit more than a one night stand, but it's something I'm going to be done with in a few weeks. <laughs> it's a two week relationship. <laughs> so I pulled a Tyler. I'm trying a boxed wine. House wines you can get in a box, you can get in the bottle, or you can also get in cans. So like, Literally, however you want this wine, they've got the option for you. This box, though, was $20, and it's equivalent to four standard 750 milliliter bottles. So that's like 55 ounce glasses of wine. I did not do the math. It says it on the back. Um, This is... 50 doesn't divide by four. Is a bottle... What? That doesn't make sense. They rounded up? Why are you... Wait, it's saying 55 ounce glasses in four bottles? Oh, <laughs> 20. <laughs> 25 ounce glasses. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, Brittany, a, one bottle of wine is not 12 and a half <laughs> glasses. Do you love how I didn't even question myself? I was just like, no, it's 50. I'm going to repeat it like three times. It's 50. 20. Oh, God. 25 okay. ounce glasses. There we go. Anyway, so House Wines is a product of Chile, but it's bottled or boxed in Walla Walla, Washington. And you, like I said, you can get this wine in any type of container. They they may start putting it in like little um, Capri Sun things. Just kidding. They're not. Oh, I, w- I was thinking like a 80 gallon drum. <laughs> oh, Maybe. I mean, oh my god, think of shotgunning an 80-gallon drum. I don't want to give our frat boy listeners any ideas. Do we have frat listeners? I don't know. Listeners, if you're in a fraternity, hi. Hello. I guess. This wine has red currant aromas that promise a juicy red fruit on the mid-palate and a very lengthy, velvety finish. This wine is comprised of about 57% Cabernet Sauvignon, 23% Syrah, 19% Merlot, and 1% Petit Verdot. So it's a pretty basic red blend. The alcohol content of this, it's actually, so I had 13.4 written in my notes, but that was for the bottle and the box is 12.5%. So it's a little bit different. Don't really know why, but there, there you go. And it pairs very well with pizza or pasta dishes. So I... I feel like that's a very basic red wine thing to say. It's like, oh shit, I don't know what it pairs well. Um, steak and pizza, pasta, reds, mm-hmm. Basically. So I've actually already spouted it and done all the stuff. So here we go. 
So are you? What is happening? Are you? You're smelling it like it is a freshly poured shot of tequila. <laughs> um. Well, it's got the the nose burning things. Yeah, like it hurts my nose. The alcohol. Twelve point five. Are you getting a nosebleed really? too? Basically, it's running down my chin. Just kidding. Um. Yeah, it's definitely red fruit. Like, it, it's going to be a sweeter one. Red blends normally are. Which, like Tyler said, is normally why they're not my go-to wine. Um, red fruit is screaming. It's like jammy, fruity. It's definitely going to be juicy. There, there are some terrified raspberries in your glass. <laughs> why? Wait, why are they terrified? They're screaming. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Brittany, come on, <laughs> listeners, be disappointed in her with me. Whatever. Uh, yeah, they are screaming. Please don't drink me. Please don't drink me. And I'm like, why? You've already been macerated. How are you even speaking? I don't really know the answer to that. But I do know <laughs> that I think I need to drink this wine because it sounds like I already have I been. Think, <laughs> I, I think we both desperately need wine. So with that, I, I say cheers. And I've got like a, a cup, but it's plastic, so it's not going to cheers <laughs> well. So here we go. It's it's my Starbucks like to go thing. But yeah. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. So do you want to go first or do you want me to? I think you're scared of your wine. Huh. You know. <laughs> Are you siding more with that uh, one, one and a half star review? Well, it depends. See, the thing is, it is a wine that when it first hits your tongue like the pre-swallow, it's bad, y'all. It's, or, I'm not a fan. But once you swallow it, like the the aftertaste and the that's when the flavors actually open. And it's not bad. It's it's a solid red wine, but it, I I'm thinking it's because my wine's a little cold right now. But right now, like when I first take a sip, there's like very little flavor, which happens when red wines are too cold, and it just feels heavy and wrong. So, um I I'm going to drink the whole bottle. I want to uh, I want to know how it is uh, in the middle of the episode after it's warmed up. Because I'm just curious if the beginning taste stays like, oh gosh, I need to hurry up and swallow, or if it gets better. Like it's a bad first date. Yeah, I'm I'm le- erring on the side of uh, it just needs to open up a little bit. Uh, because again, it's, you know, it's a red wine that I just opened, so it hasn't breathed. It is a little colder, so I'll reserve judgment for a little bit. We'll see. Well, I'm ready to judge mine. Yeah, judge away. Okay. It's definitely red fruit. It's juicy. The tannins are low. There, There's nothing that's biting you there. So it is definitely a velvety finish. Honestly, it, it's what I expect out of a box wine. It's drinkable. I like Boda Box better. I also, side note, just going to like snob it up a little bit because that's who I am. But as we have mentioned time and time again, I've been more into European wines lately. And this is obviously not that. It is very fruit forward, which is the opposite of what I truly enjoy right now. And I have yet to really find a box wine that I truly love anymore. So literally, listeners, if you have any recommendations, I'll pretty much try anything. I have also tried a lot of them already. So it's a good wine, especially if you are the type of person that just wants a couple glasses and doesn't want to open the bottle. (laughs) You come back to me. 
<laughs> you left there for a second. <laughs> I know, I think I dissociated for a hot minute. <laughs> Listeners, his face was just like glazed over, like he was asleep with his eyes open or something. I'm like, hello, hello, I'm still talking. Anyway, yeah. it's it's a good wine. It's decent. Fruit forward. It'd be good for yeah. in a sangria. I think it'd be a great base for that, which, I mean, honestly, I mean, any, any if red a wine. wine <laughs> hasn't turned, it's good in a sangria. <laughs> If you're like, oh, God, I would never drink this in my entire life, throw some fruit in it, and it's wonderful. And you'll drink it. So, God, I love sangria. We It's been a hot minute since we've done sangria for the podcast. Dude, didn't we talk about doing a white wine sangria like a hundred fucking times and we still haven't done it? Yeah, and I think we did like four episodes ago. I think it wasn't that long ago. It's not the okay, first time well, we've mentioned it. I'm just saying. N- I know. Well, okay. Yeah, next time at the store, I'm going to get some peaches. I'm going to get some stuff. I'm going to do a white wine sangria. I want to do one. Let's pick I an mean, episode yeah. and we're going to do it. Okay. okay. Yes. Listeners, upcoming is a white wine sangria. Probably not next episode. Maybe next episode. I don't know, but don't get your hopes up. Someone send us an, a message on Instagram. Please remind me. Thank you. I will remember yes. if it's in a message. <laughs> You know, just put it on our G-Cal. Okay. Well, we've got our wine. We've chatted about our topic. We've talked about our red blends. Let's get into our cases. Tyler, what case did you pick for this episode? So this is a case that um, I actually have known for quite a while since it actually happened because it takes place in Seattle and it happened just about a month after I moved there. And some of the important locations in the case were happening in the same neighborhood I was moving into. So, uh, Oh, fuck. That's, that's comforting. Yeah. So I actually, when, when you told me the topic, I did some research. And when I saw the name of this case, I was like, it all kind of came back to me. I was like, yep, here we are. And this case is the murder of Ingrid Line. The sources I used, Wikipedia, her page, Death of Ingrid Line, an article in Yahoo by Jeff Truesdell, an article on Nurse.org by Angelina Walker, two articles from the Seattle Times by Sarah Jean Green and Steve Miletich, and an article in Oxygen by Jill Setterstrom. So Ingrid Line, she was born in 1975. And in 2016, she's a single mother. She has three young daughters who are 10, 8, and 6. And she's a nurse in Seattle at the Swedish Medical Center. It's one of the major hospitals there in Seattle. It's huge. I lived very close to it. At this point in her life, she'd recently met a man named John Charlton on an online dating site. And they'd been dating for about a month. So on April 8th of 2016, the two of them, they went on another date. They went to a Seattle Mariners baseball game. And then after the game, they headed to a bar that was nearby for some drinks. The two of them then were pretty drunk after the bar. They got in the car and returned to Ingrid Lynn's house in Renton, which is a suburb of Seattle. And that was the last time that she was ever seen alive. 
I hate that. I know all of our cases generally have some form of that line, but it still just like mm-hmm. punches you when you hear it. Because it's like, no, even though you knew, you knew, you yeah. all knew. I mean, yeah. And I hate that because it's always put as like the last normal moment. Like it's almost retroactive kind of thing. Yes, it always is. It's like as soon as that happens, then that's when like you jump off the cliff. And so the next morning on April 9th, uh, Lynn's ex-husband, Phil Lynn, he arrived at her house to drop off their three daughters, but he couldn't find her or her car. He's like, she's not home. This is weird. So he calls her mom and her mom lives nearby and she has a key to the house if she ever needs to like pop in or I guess she's also just the person who has the spare key. So she comes over with the key to you know, open up the door, get into the house, because Phil is sitting here being like, where's Ingrid? Like, this is, this is weird. She's the type of person that her daughters are literally like the most important things in her entire life. So Phil coming to like drop off the daughters after, you know, his weekend of having them and stuff, her not being like, that's weird. This is not something she would have forgotten about. This is also something they've been divorced for quite a while and are on good terms still so it's not like this is new this is already a routine they're in they've established but they get in the house with the help of ingrid's mom and her key and when they get inside ingrid's cell phone her purse her computer her tablet they're all in the house they're all there but there's no sign of ingrid and so they're like what what is what is happening At the same time as this is happening, Ingrid also hasn't shown up for work. And that is completely unlike her. So they have a lot of clues that are like immediate hints that, oh shit, something is the matter. Something is really not right. Yes. And again, for Ingrid, the only thing in her life really other than being a mom that really defined her from a lot of things I saw from friends and everything that wrote is her love of being a nurse and you know the fact that her job was helping and saving people and being a light in others lives i mean that is like such a part of who she was and she loved it so her not showing up for work that's a huge red flag right and so her friends quickly like got on social media got on her facebook her twitter instagram i don't her social media to be like girl where are you And a lot of them knew that she'd, for the past month, been dating Charlton. And so they, you know, reached out to him on Facebook. And even some of her friends reached out to his sister, being like, hey, do you know where John is? Like, Ingrid told us they were going on a date last night. She's not here for work. We don't know how to get a hold of him. So her friends are, like, fucking on it. And Ingrid was reported missing that day. Well... Later that day, in the afternoon at about 4.30 p.m., a man named Mike Novacio, he's at his house in Seattle's Central District. It's about 10 miles away from Ingrid's house, and Central District is the neighborhood I moved into when I moved to Seattle. I was on the edge of, like, Capitol Hill in Central District, but I was technically in Central District, so this stuff was happening very close to me, and he's at his house. In Seattle Central District, he's doing some chores around his house, and he's, you know, cleaning up. He goes, takes a bag to the recycling bin, and he discovers something in it, and 
immediately calls the police. And I'm just going to read the transcript of his call. All right, this chunk of it. Oh, no. He called them and he said, this is going to sound really bizarre, but I went to go grab my recycling bin and there were three white trash bags in the recycling bin and I went to lift them out and honestly, it's freaking me out, but it looks like it's a foot. Holy shit. He had discovered the dismembered body of Ingrid. She had just been placed in this random recycling bin. She'd been dismembered, put into different bags, and into his recycling bin. And the thing is, it's like a neighborhood, like a house, you know, blue bin on the two wheels. I don't know, 80 gallon, whatever size those are. Yeah. Recycling bin for a house that you just, oh, the trash man's coming. Let me put this on the street. Oh my god. And it was just three bags that were in the bottom of the recycling bin. He said they were incredibly heavy and they weren't supposed to be there. So I guess my story of him taking a bag out. No, he was just like coming to take them in because, oh, the recycling truck had already been by, emptied it. So he sees there's not supposed to be bags in here. And so that's why he reached in to pull them out. And he said, I grabbed the first bag, and it was so almost professionally packaged that it was very eerie, and you could see as I pulled it out what was the outline of a face. Oh my god! And this dude didn't just start screaming because... Oh, he... There's I, there's a couple of interviews um, of him. He full-on panic. I did not... I did not read his uh, 911 call in his actual voice, which I'm sure was full-on screaming. Yeah, because one of the most absolute horrific things you could find in your personal recycling bin, there is nothing worse. Literally, there is nothing worse that you could find. Uh, Than a bot, no. And the bags that were in his bin, they contained Lynn's head, her left arm, and her right leg. So it wasn't even Oliver. It wasn't even all of her. So police, they went to Ingrid Lynn's house. And I couldn't really tell the timing of this from my sources, but I got the general idea that it happened when she was reported missing, but before her body parts were found. Okay. Because, I mean, I assume when you call the police, tell them someone's missing, they they go to the house. Yeah. So that's kind of my frame of thought. But when police get to the house, they discovered blood pieces of human tissue, and a pruning saw that were in Lynn's bathroom. And they also found trash bags that were identical to those that her body parts were in. And this saw, it's a 15-inch wood saw laying against the bathtub. And it's the kind that if you're like trimming trees and, you you know, cutting small branches off. So it's it's a saw meant to cut through branches and shit. And it's just in the bathroom, covered in blood, piece of human tissue. And so authorities believed that her killer had killed her in her own home, then dismembered her body in the bathtub before dumping her remains. And they just left the scene like that. Yeah. And I am pretty sure from my sources and everything I read that Phil Lynn, her ex-husband, who was you know, dropping off their three daughters, didn't, like, the daughters didn't see this. 
Could. Because I didn't see anything that says they found it. I mean, everything I saw is that the police were the ones who found the blood, the saw. So I think maybe the daughters honestly stayed in the car the whole time while Phil and Ingrid's mom went in. And that's when they saw like her computer and cell phone and stuff. And we're like, where is she? Or maybe they came in for that first, but no one went into the bathroom kind of thing. Yeah. But thankfully, they didn't see this. At least there's one saving grace with that. Yeah. So pretty immediately, John Charlton is the main suspect. I mean, that's an obvious first suspect, totally. Yeah. And also, who the hell is this guy? Right. We don't know anything about him except that they went on a date and he was the last person to ever see her, potentially. Yeah. Well, John Charlton, he was 37 years old. He worked as a day laborer. And he was homeless and spent his nights at a shelter in Seattle. But two or so nights a week, he would spend at an ex-girlfriend's house. And this ex-girlfriend told detectives, told police, that she'd known him for about a year. And they'd broken up, but they were still friendly. So she let him stay and she let him store some of his belongings at her house because he didn't have a place to live at the time. And... Going back a little bit more in his past to March 2nd of 2006, so about 10 years prior, his parents had found him drunk in their house in Thurston County, Washington, and he allegedly was acting very physically threatening and verbally violent to them for a few hours, and while this was happening, he pulled out a movie from the movie shelf, and this movie was Hannibal. And he said it in front of his mom and told her that she should watch this and beware. And this was bad enough. This incident, I think, was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Cherry on the Sunday. I don't know. It was the final straw. Oh, yeah. The final straw. That's <laughs> There we go. That his parents got a restraining order against him. His parents also said that he abused crack cocaine and has been known to hold grudges for several years, and he exposed frustrations when he was under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and these frustrations that he displays can be very intimidating and can cause fear and violence. And he also had a criminal record in six states. He had convictions for aggravated robbery, felony theft, grand theft auto, assault, and third-degree larceny. Which, maybe I shouldn't be asking this in the 113th episode of our true crime podcast, but um, what's larceny? Like, isn't that just theft? Yeah, because isn't grand larceny, like, major theft? One moment, please. <laughs> because I always thought larceny and theft were the same thing. But seeing that he has counts for theft and larceny, I'm like, wait, what? No, larceny is when it's uh, personal property. Okay. Okay. You know, maybe that wasn't a stupid question then for this criminology major in the 113th episode of our True Crime podcast. Um, sure. But yeah, you know. Okay. Well, my I thought it was theft. So I asked that because I was like, wait, felony theft and also larceny. But all right. So, yes, he had a background, and, I mean, shit, though, I don't think, I don't think Ingrid knew any of that, because they met online dating, they'd only been dating for about a month, so, I mean, what are the opportunities on your first date? Are you like, so, tell me about your criminal record. Right. Are you close with your parents? <laughs> Two things that I thought of when you were describing the incident where his parents, like, came home and he was there and he was acting weird and violent. 
It definitely sounded like he was on something. Mm-hmm. My other question is like, how did they meet online if he doesn't have a home? I guess it doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't have a phone. I mean, that's the thing I, that I realized living in Seattle that I didn't realize before. Seattle has a very high homeless population mm-hmm. and also has a lot of different programs and stuff and a lot of shelters, a lot more than anywhere else I've seen. But also in Seattle specifically, you can have a phone. I mean, you can have an iPhone on a plan or, or one of those pay-by-the-month phones for 30 bucks a month. But your rent in Seattle, I mean... I never saw a place when I was living there, which was the same time period, for under $1,000 a month. So, I mean, because I always had that same argument of like, well, if you don't have a house, how, like, why are you going to have a phone? But let's be real, 30, 40 bucks a month is not the same as 1000 2000 a month. Not at all. It's not. And that's just, like I said, that was like one of my first thoughts, but... No, it it makes sense. You can totally have all these things and just not a place to live because it's so expensive to live in Mm -hmm. cities like Seattle. And also, I mean, for all I know, he could have been using the computer at the Seattle Public Library. I mean, I, I don't know. But that was one of the things that seemed so obvious. And yet I believed the opposite was like, I feel like at this point in time, it's important to have a phone and access to the internet and stuff. I feel like if, I don't know, if I was in a situation where I lost everything, a phone would be pretty high up on my priority list to have. So, um, and this case also is, I think, pretty well known as a example of, like, the dangers of online dating. I, I saw it used as a, like, not as a warning or, like, a, this is why online dating is dangerous, but another example of, like, Kind of like the Craigslist killer and things like that. Yeah, and like, don't you're you're gonna like scare me. I just joined a new dating app and guess I gotta I mean, risk it. <laughs> but the thing is, though, how many cases have we done? Oh, I know of it being. I I think you should if you're meeting people for the first time or people you don't know. Obviously, tell friends, meet in public places. Like, make sure you're keeping your safety in mind. Also, totally share your location with someone. Like, that is one of those things you can do now on a lot of cell phones is... And you don't have to, like, share your location forever. You can just do it temporarily. And it just... I mean, I have a friend who does Mm -hmm. that, and I share mine, you know, in the rare times I actually go out on a date. But, like, I'll share my location as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's... Not only are you telling someone where you are, but, like, they can actually look at their phone and be like, um, well, it's like 1230 and she hasn't told me she got home. I'm going to check and see where she is. Oh, yeah. My, I mean, one of my best friends, we have our location shared. I mean, you and I have our location shared. Totally. And we have our shared like indefinitely, even though like 99.9% of the time we look and we're both sitting in our apartments because safer at home, but still very good to have it shared. Yeah. I mean, it is good to have it shared. But the thing is like for Ingrid... She'd known him for a month at this point. Yeah. She met him at a Seattle Mariners baseball game. I You can't get more of a public place than a 40,000-person stadium. And then went to a public bar. I mean, so the the safety tips and stuff, I'm like... She did them. Yeah. And also, it's just like, we've done so many cases of friends killing or spouses. I mean, 
it's important to be safe, but you shouldn't let that fear of strangers or of meeting new people, like the dangers of that, keep you from experiencing new things and expanding your bubble, I guess. Yeah, because basically everyone is a murderer. That's what I just heard you say. Uh, that's <laughs> strangers. That's not necessarily friends, incorrect. Family. One of them's gonna kill you, so just meet them all. <laughs> no, be safe, but don't let it prevent you from living your life. I get what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, but John Charlton, he uh, he a suspicious dude with a with a not great background. So on April 11th of 2016. He was arrested by the Seattle police, and he was charged with first-degree murder and auto theft. Although, do they have anything against him? Were they just arresting him? Well, I, again, the way I was reading a lot of my sources, the timeline that a lot of these things were happening is unclear, because there's a lot of suspicious evidence that comes out in his questioning I'm about to go into, and I'm assuming if her friends knew, hey, she's dating this guy... This police questioning probably happened before his arrest, i.e. the day she was reported missing. Right. And the day her body was found and stuff. So, yes, to arrest and charge him with, with more than, like, you were the last person they were seen with, there's more evidence. I don't know which evidence they found first kind of thing. But he, when he was talking to police, he told them that he woke up uh, the morning after their date. Uh, he was lying down on a sidewalk in downtown Seattle. He had some facial injuries, cuts to his body, and he was, he was so drunk he didn't remember that evening. And also, downtown Seattle to Redmond is like 15-ish miles. Oh. I mean, also, in Seattle, even if the, this shit's happening at midnight... That's like a 30, 40 minute drive, y'all, from downtown Seattle to Redmond. Like, that's. Yeah. That's not that close. And by Redmond, if I've been saying Redmond this whole time, I've met Renton. You've been saying Redmond the whole time. Okay. It's. Okay. I'm sorry, everyone. Also, people who know the case who've been like, it. She's not from Redmond. It's Renton. You can. I assume y'all can see why I got them confused. Redmond is a suburb north of Seattle. Renton, a suburb south of Seattle. Oh, I mean, I didn't Distance know that. Distance from Seattle, though, is is not that different. Anywho, Redmond's where Microsoft is. Renton is where people live. People who work at Seattle live. That's it. Suburb. Houses. Yeah. Got it. It's a bedroom community. Anywho, so them going to her house, and then him waking up downtown Seattle, that's weird. And... Her car, her Toyota Highlander, was nearby where he woke up. And so it's like, hmm, I don't think so. He also told police that he, you know, he was so drunk he didn't remember what happened that evening. But he thinks that they had sex after they returned to her house and that she was acting weird. But he couldn't even describe to the police how she was acting weird. He was like, she's acting weird. And they were like, oh, in what way? And he's like, just, you know, weird. I'm like, oh, in a way, like, you made this up? I wish and... the cop said that. Oh, like, in a way that this isn't real? <laughs> this is your imagination? Got, that's why I probably wouldn't be a great cop. Because my partner would be like, dude, shut the fuck up. Quit being a sassy queen. You're like, well, he's clearly lying. Like, sis, put the handcuffs on. You're done, so. Thank you, next. Anywho, okay. That's not what we're talking about. He is given some evidence, and 
obviously what it's looking like has happened is they got to Lynn's house at her house. That's where he murdered her. And then he stole her car, like dismembered her, put her into trash bags, stole her car, drove back to Seattle to dispose of her body parts, and I guess pass out on the sidewalk. So Ingrid's autopsy revealed that she was suffocated with a plastic bag and then drowned in her own home, most likely in the bathtub that he then dismembered her in. On April 15th, so four days after he was arrested, more severed body parts were found by a garbage collector that was in a different location. And three days later, three days after that, on April 18th, additional body parts were found at a third location in Seattle. So he was just driving around the city, dropping off bags? Yeah. After his arrest, Charlton was held in the King County Jail on $5 million bail. And on October 2nd, 2017, at his trial, Charlton pled guilty to all of the charges against him. He'd previously pled not guilty, so it, you know, went to trial. Uh Um, But at trial, he pled guilty, um, and the charges included the murder and dismemberment of Ingrid. And at his sentencing, the King County Superior Court Judge, Julie Spector, she told him, What you did was vicious and cruel beyond anyone's belief. And she said that she would lock him up for life if she could. Ingrid's ex-husband, Phil, he said that Charlton stole his co-parent and the sounding board and his daughter's devoted and compassionate mother. He said, there will be no more motherly advice from Ingrid. No more 4th of July holidays in Big Fork, Montana. No more trips to the beach or Thursday night dinners at a steakhouse. And his children's children will never have a maternal grandmother. He said, our daughters continue to thrive, but they miss their mother every day. On January 5th of 2018, Charlton was sentenced to 27 years and nine months in prison. Um, and this was the sentence that was like recommended by prosecutors. There were a couple of things that said like it was the maximum sentence. That's what I was about to said, ask. I don't think it's the maximum. I don't know. Because there were a couple sources that said this is the maximum. There were a couple that just said this was the recommended. And I know Washington State doesn't have the death penalty or it might be one of those states that technically has it but like doesn't do it anymore right but they have life in prison so it might have been something that like i don't know maybe the evidence and stuff like it would have been harder to push for a life sentence or maybe because he oh maybe i bet it's because he pled guilty yeah yeah probably a plea bargain i bet So he was sentenced to 27 years and nine months, which, I mean, he was 30, basically 40. So, I mean, that would put him in prison till like almost 70. But yeah, he is in prison now. And I am so sorry. I just realized that I've been mispronouncing her last name for about the last half of my case. It's Ingrid Line. I think I said it correct at the beginning, but it's spelled L-Y-N-E. And I've been saying Lynn the past half. I apologize. Her name is Ingrid Line. But even though there were three separate locations where parts of Ingrid's body were found, some of her remains still to this day have never been found. 
And that is my case. That is the murder of Ingrid Line. Your case is really scary. Just yeah, because like we were talking about in the middle, she did all the safety checks. She was just dating this guy. She met him. They met in all the public places and he ends up murdering her after gaining her trust, dismembering her and disposing of her body in multiple trash cans. Yeah. Thank God at least he was dumb enough to pass out on the sidewalk. Yeah. This case is horrifying. And I remember, I remember it when I first moved there, like seeing the different news stories and stuff and hearing... You know, oh, they found, they found more body parts. They found, like, in that, you know, me being at the office and people talking about it. And I had not yet moved to um, the Central District when the first bags were found. But I moved pretty shortly afterwards. And, you know, that was during the time of, like, are we going to find more body parts? And it was just like, oh, this is okay. I don't even, and it, oh, oof. God. It was just, this This case is horrifying, because I, I knew the vague, you know, I knew someone had been dismembered, but diving into the detail and the research of this case, I was just like, holy shit. So, uh, Brittany, tell me, tell me about your case. What is your missing pieces case? I'm doing the murder of Karina Homer, oh. which also could be Homer, it's H-O-L-M-E-R. Homer. Homer. Yeah. You kind of say the L, but you don't like lean into it. Yeah. Also, I'm sorry, just before you get into your own case, because you'd previously asked, oh, for a wine update oh, on, yeah. on the midpoint. It's opened up and revealed itself to be sweet. Like, y'all, usually by this point, I know I went first, so, you know, usually when either of us are doing our own cases, we're drinking less wine because we're talking. But usually by now, I'm at least halfway through. Y'all, I'm about, th- I'm about a fourth of the way through. She's struggling. It's gross. You um, can say barefoot. it. It's gross. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to hate on barefoot, but uh, the rich red blend is not for me at all. But if you like real fruity or you like sweeter wines and you want to try a red, it's not sweet like, oh, this is sweet wine. But for someone who likes very dry wines and does not want any sweetness. <sighs> Didn't you say at the beginning that it's a good intro to people who are trying reds? Oh, yeah, that was what that one review said. Yeah. So with that in mind, I can see it. And with that in mind, not for you. Not for me. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, um, I'm gonna, I'm going to drink the rest of it because it's already open and I don't waste. And I will say, I feel similar to the house wine. It's not my favorite. It's not as sweet as what you're describing yours is. There are what I would almost call like oaky notes, but like not really. It's clearly not real oak, but it's not bad. I'm not going to buy this box again. Like I said. Yeah, this one, it it just has the flavor that lingers on the tongue is like you just swallowed a spoonful of like strawberry jam. Oh, I thought it was going to be sugar. You missed it. You missed that opportunity. The Mary Poppins Um, opportunity. I I Mary Poppins. I also don't think I've ever seen Mary Poppins. I think I've only seen it like twice. It's not, well, okay. no, that's a lie. I did like that movie as a kid. It's just been a really long time. But yeah, uh, never, never saw it. But uh, yeah, no, no. Spoonful of sugar. Mm-mm. I don't know. Can- it, what, but your case. Yeah. What, what sources did you use? <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Karina Holmer. Yeah. So I, yes. I used an article in the Boston Globe by Adrian Walker, an article from Boston 25 News by Bob Ward. An article from the blog Vicky Writes by Vicky, 
And, oh. Yeah, I couldn't find I, I couldn't find her last name. It honestly wasn't on the blog, so I she's Vicky. Well, when you said Vicky writes, I was thinking like writes, not like pencil and paper writes, but that makes more sense if it's a blog. It's more like Vicky types, but there you go. And then also an article from Detroit Legal News by Mark Kranchowitz. This case has taken us back to Boston in the 1990s. At that time, the crime rate was double as it is now, and there were gangs still running the streets. Boston was, you know, a pretty violent place to be. But of all these different crimes that were occurring in the city... This one in particular, it's haunted the city of Boston ever since, and that was the gruesome slaying of Swedish au pair Karina Homer. I'll explain what that is later if you don't know what an au pair is. No, but I just went through the entire mental journey of, oh shit, I think I know this case. Oh wait, the case I'm thinking of wouldn't make sense. And then you said the name and I was like, oh, different case. It was a journey. Yeah. Karina Homer grew up in a small town in Sweden with her parents. She was a girl that was very down to earth. She loved animals. She wanted to travel. That was one of her big aspirations. And she was a really good student. And her chance to experience something completely different than her normal life came in 1996 when she was 20 years old. She won $1,500 on a lottery ticket. Nice. Yeah. Do you know how bad I wish I could win $1,500 right now? God, I could pay rent once. <laughs> yeah. God, I know. That's so depressing. Let me tell you what Ugh. she did with the money in 1996. She used that money to contact an au pair agency, and she wanted to be placed in the United States for a few months. So an au pair is a young person, typically between the ages of 18 and 30, who goes abroad to live with the family to learn the language and experience life in that family's country in exchange for providing childcare. It's the like the French, like A-U-P-A-R. Yep. Okay. I don't know what I thought you were saying, <laughs> but I was thinking like op, O-P, and it was something like an op-ed, like an opinion, like sh- she's a journalist or something. No. And I'm like, an au-pair? Like, ooh, like, what's what's this? Like, what's she a journalist for? No, an au-pair. Like, au-pair. Yeah, gotcha. Now, now I'm following. By the way, I would 100% do this. I didn't know this was an option. I didn't know this was a thing, but I totally would have done it. I mean, travel to another country to babysit? That's not what you do all the time. I mean, yeah, but what if the kids suck? Hey, it's worth the risk, but I would watch some shitty kids that live in Paris so I could live in Paris for Mm, a few months. Okay, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) What if the parents suck? Okay, but that's when I just let it, it's a fantasy, so it's going to turn into a movie. And so I, coming from somewhere else, not only do they open my eyes to things, but man, I open theirs. And I teach their child something that they didn't know, and it helps this child grow. And like, the mom and I have that moment where we just really connect. It's, It's fleeting. It's a fleeting moment. It doesn't last, but you know. We share a glass of wine and kind of smile at each other from across the room. And Upgrade your fantasy, Brittany. <laughs> Take out the mom. There's They're divorced. She's dead. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but it's a single dad. And you move there. 
and you're like you first meet him and you're like he's kind of a dick but i'm i like this kid and you know your your bond starts with the kid and the kid's also one of those six-year-olds who's like too smart like think dakota fanning and uptown girls kind of shit and you know the dad you're like dick but then you start to realize you're like oh my god he's just like closed off himself and then you know by the end of it there's a big misunderstanding kind of thing at the end your contract's ending or maybe you're like you know what no i'm done but then he you know follows you you have your bags pack walk through charles de gaulle or maybe you're like still at the train station because it'd be kind of excessive to get all the way to the airport <laughs> regardless but i don't know you fall in love and this like i'm a babysitter turns into how bitch i'm your mom now uh, you know how you talk to kids and uh, and uh, just to upgrade your fantasy a little bit come on okay listen you told me what if you're faced with a situation with shitty kids and shitty parents you did not say what would be the best case scenario that would create an amazing rom-com Okay, well, I'm just saying, also, you can combine your fantasy, say, the ex-wife, she and ex-husband are still friends, and she's your, like, BFF. And y'all still have wine together and shit. Am I gonna write a book? Because when she's dropping off Beatrice, I don't know, it sounds like I'm the one writing it right now. (laughs) Oh, I'm just, no, I've captured all the ideas, and I think this is the beginning of a wonderful novel, because obviously if I'm gonna write a novel, it, it happens in Paris, obviously. If I don't at least get a foreword in this, I'm taking your ass to court using this podcast as evidence. You get a foreword. Okay, well, then we're good. Or I mean profits, too. Like, I want money. Yeah, totally. 15%. When you hit New York Times bestseller. Okay, yeah, no, I'll take that. Listeners, you heard it here first. Help Britney hit number one when she releases her novel in 2048. Au pair Paris. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> you guys, this is totally legit. Copywriting this idea right now, don't fucking steal it. Well, I mean, I think the opposite of copywriting is telling thousands of people. <laughs> um, but, you know, same vein. We trust you guys. We trust y'all not to take this idea. But also, it's obviously going to be written in kind of a scripty font, and it's like au pair, comma, Paris, right? Totally. Yeah, okay, cool. The cover <laughs> is a pretty stereotypical picture of, like, the Eiffel Tower. Well, I was actually thinking it would be an illustration, because it's it's a rom-com, so you've got these really fun, bright-colored covers. It It's either, like, a mm. baby blue cover, or it might be light pink. I'm thinking light pink. Oh, see, I, I was thinking, I was thinking the baby blue, but it's, it's like a, you know, Eiffel Tower, but the, the sky behind it's all baby blue and shit. Okay, anyway, we can table this discussion for later. <laughs> we can, because I'm about to get into a story about, like, that's gonna make the op air not seem like a very great thing. No, I know, but I, I think we needed that. I think that was a necessary little, little tangent. Yeah, I think it was. My heart needed it, okay? I don't have wine to soothe my grief. Karina was selected and placed with a family in Dover, Massachusetts. It was a couple, Frank Rapp and Susan Nitscher, and both of them were artists. Frank was a photographer, and Susan was in painting. And Karina cared for their two children during the week, as well as did some of the housework around the house. So does she, like, live there with them like she's a live-in yeah. nanny kind of thing yes okay during the weekend though she stayed at frank's boston studio and enjoyed experiencing the boston nightlife with other au pairs that she'd met in the city is this like a community like like when you study abroad and there's you know facebook groups and like an international students in oslo kind of 
thing. Is there an Opair Austin that I'm like secret community I'm not aware of? I don't know. I've honestly never looked into this. It's not something I'd heard about before this case. But I'm glad that, you know, there's at least some other people in the area that are with the same company. Because like I said, she had to Oh my god, yeah. She had to pay a company to like get on these lists and have this opportunity that it's not like a free to sign up kind of thing. So, like I said, on the weekends, she would stay at Frank's studio in Boston. And so every Friday, Frank would travel from Boston back home to Dover, while Karina would travel in the opposite direction. So she would go from Dover to Boston. Everything in her life seemed like a dream. But as we all know, things are not always as they seem. So around the same time that she was murdered, Karina wrote in letters to one of her friends back home in Sweden that something terrible had occurred. But she did not want to go into the detail, and she said she would elaborate when she was back home. She also told her sister, Joanna, that she wanted to cut her time in the United States short. She really didn't like the housework, and the childcare tasks were just... She was not enjoying that part of her job. Later, Frank and Susan would say that they had absolutely no idea that Karina was feeling this way. She was one of those people she very much kept to herself. They thought everything was fine. On the night of June 23rd, 1996, Karina planned to go out with friends to celebrate Sweden's biggest holiday, the summer solstice. So in Sweden, it's basically a day where the sun never goes down. It's, you know, you just have a great time. I mean, like the sun's up for a really long time. So Karina met with a few of her friends and they came to the loft where she was staying and they socialized and they got ready to go out and they ended up going to Zanzibar. If I said that wrong, sorry. It's like Zanzibar, two Zs. The place? I mean, this bar. No, it's a bar, but also Zanzibar, like the island that's off Tanzania. Okay. Africa. How how would I know that? I guess I didn't study my map of Tanzania before the episode. I apologize. Okay, I I feel like a Zanz I feel like Zanzibar is something people have Okay, whatever. It's a pun bar. Okay, geek. It's a pun. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I mean I is looking at maps one of my favorite things to do, one of my pastimes? Yes. Yes. Is it something I might spend like an hour a day if I honestly looked at myself a day doing? Yes, maybe. I don't yes. know. Leave me alone. Minimum one hour. They were they were in Zanzibar, but so, at Zanzibar. This was a nightclub at <laughs> Boylston. <laughs> Boylston. Like boil, like water, or like skin? Stun. What are you Not boiling, boiling skin. No, not boiling skin, but, like, people with boils on their skin. (laughs) Okay, because you, like, boil skin. Excuse me. No, boil stun. Stun, not boil skin. The ore is important, like a boil on the skin, and then stun, like the end of a common white people last name. It it goes by the Boston Commons, y'all. It does. It goes right by the Boston I, Commons. You know what? You would you would know this if you had ever read Cell by Stephen King. The first, like, 40 pages takes place on Boylston. It's on my list. Been on your list, Ben. Mm, that's my next book, I promise. Since, what, February? It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can I get back to my case? Please. Continue. <laughs> Boystolin. So they're on Boylskin Place. And this is like an alley that's very tucked away in the theater district. And this alley shares like lots of other nightclubs. 
Karina gets there with three of her friends, and they easily got in using fake IDs. Once inside, the drinking, dancing, and partying started, and they're just having a really good time. Like, things start moving into yeah. high gear. Two of her friends, literally, like, that that's all of it. Two of her friends met a couple of dudes from the Mideast, and they left with them. A third friend, who was a nanny from Medfield, drank way too much passed out eventually recovered oh shit and she like left with one of the bouncers passed out at the club yeah at the club and woke up and like she was okay and like left with the bouncer so karina also had a lot to drink that night and it was also reported that she'd been passed out on the women's bathroom floor and her friends lost contact with her because you know she was really drunk they were really drunk everyone was really drunk eventually karina headed outside for fresh air but she found out that she couldn't get back into the club because it was closing time so when she was out in the alley she again she's very intoxicated and she's dancing and singing and i mean to her she's she's having a great time so she passed out in the bathroom for a hot minute supposedly friend passed out i'm i'm getting suspect that something got put in their drinks or they were just drinking a lot I mean, yeah, but I don't know. Or both, honestly. Yeah. Several eyewitnesses noticed that she was talking to a man named Herb Witten, and he was walking his Great Pyrenees, which are those big, like, fluffy, beautiful white dogs. But this was really odd. Oh. But this was really weird, because it was after 3 a.m. Apparently, who's walking their damn dog at 3 a.m.? I think I walked Max at 3 a.m. like two days ago. I mean, I've been out in the middle of the night to walk Charlie. Like, if it's one of those nights where I'm like, okay, for some reason I stayed up until 2, I'm going to take him out before I go to bed. I mean, so it sounds weird when you say it, but it's, as a dog owner, it's really not the weirdest thing. Yeah, but also, if it's 3 a.m. and I'm taking Max out... I'm not talking to a damn soul. You come up to me and I have my, I'm finishing this and going to bed, look away face on. True. Like, I don't want to talk to a damn person. But I guess also if you like live near a club and it's a Friday or Saturday, I don't know, maybe he's, you know, okay, I recant my statement. If I was walking Max at 3am and there was like this drunk woman alone in an alley, like I would, yes, I'd be like, girl, you... You okay? Where are your friends? Do you need a taxi? We don't know what they were talking about. But apparently, Herb would regularly drive from Andover and try to pick up women on the weekends. So he might not be having her best interest in mind. Oh. Wait, he lives in Andover and he's walking his dog at 3 a.m. in Boston? Yep. Dude, that's fucking weird. I know. 3 a.m., on Boylston Alleyway was the last time anyone saw Karina Homer alive. The next thing that happened is a mystery, and only whoever did this to her knows exactly what happened next. Two days after Karina disappeared, on Sunday morning, June 25th, a homeless man was rummaging in the dumpster of a Fenway area apartment to look for bottles and recyclables, which, yes, freaked me out when you were saying this in your case, because... Yeah, I'm giving I'm giving Brittany a look because I'm like, okay, wait, what? Yeah, because when this man ripped a trash bag open, he was shocked to find a human arm and he immediately called the police. So when police and investigators arrived, 
They pulled the bag out of the dumpster, and they opened it, and inside this black trash bag was the unclothed body of a woman, later identified as Karina. All of her makeup had been removed, and she had marks on her neck that were consistent with strangulation with use of a ligature. She was severed in two with a saw at the waist, and only the upper half of her body was found in the dumpster. She was cut in half in such a way it was like below her ribs and, you know, before it got to her hip. So the only bone that had to be cut through was her spine. Because of this, she's sometimes referred to as the Boston Black Dahlia, which if you have read about or heard anything about the murder of Elizabeth Short, there really are some parallels in this that are beyond horrifying. Elizabeth Short was also cut in half but her entire body was found but her case is unsolved yeah well you you did uh, the case of elizabeth short that was episode two right yeah yeah that was way back in the day sorry for the sound quality y'all that are about to go listen to it after this because yeah that was our like intro like the our first cases that introduced us to true crime yep and that was Damn. mine the only evidence that was found was a partial fingerprint on the bag which never received a match, and there's even a possibility it could have just been the homeless man's fingerprint or a partial that they found, like, because he found the bag. Yeah. So with that, there's no crime scene, and the police went about seeking suspects. The distance between Zanzibar and where Karina was found was a straight shot, and it was only about 1.3 miles down Boylston Street. The Rapp family, who had been employing her immediately called the police when they saw a news report about a young unidentified woman being discovered because they were like oh shit well karina's not here yeah hundreds of tips started to pour in and a team of boston police and investigators led by detective tommy o'leary ran down every single one of these tips they searched countless apartments um in the finway area They checked bodies of water where the rest of her body may have been dumped because, again, her lower half was still missing. They spent two days with experts from the FBI behavioral sciences team compiling a profile of the kind of person who would commit such a horrible, heinous crime. But unfortunately, this was all to no avail. Police even searched the loft where Frank lived and like where Karina was staying on the weekends, and they interviewed all of the family. But every single one of them had alibis. And while some people do think they acted a little bit suspiciously, police could never tie anyone in the family to the crime. And honestly, Mm -hmm. their level of suspicion could just be like a, holy shit, our au pair from Sweden that we employed ends up murdered? Like, that's not a conversation you're going to be calm through. With the police? No, and I could also 100% understand the a parent's mindset of, even though logically, no, it doesn't make sense, but like, oh my god, you know, our au pair, the person who's watching our children is murdered. Is someone going after our children? Do we need to make sure they're protected? Yeah, police searched all the areas and like stretches around Zanzibar, and they interviewed eyewitnesses that were there that night. Who were ultimately unreliable, and many of them told conflicting reports of her last movements, but this is a nightclub. People are out. They're not paying attention to Mm -hmm. other people. They're having a good time. They're drinking. Like, yeah, stories are going to differ. I mean, a nightclub is the kind of place 
where someone could literally get murdered in the nightclub and more than half the people there would not even be considered witnesses. Or would have no idea it even happened. Ex- like, ex- exactly. Herb Witten, who was the guy with the dog, he was also interviewed, but he was cleared. He had a really good alibi because he was pulled over later that night by a cop for speeding. Oh, oh yeah. Karina's lower half has never been located, nor was any type of crime scene ever located or identified. Theories that it was disposed of to cover up some type of sexual assault or pregnancy, but we will likely never know. And there were forensic tests done, and she wasn't pregnant, so like that's not, like that theory is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Zanzibar was ultimately shut down due to liquor license concerns, i.e. they were serving minors. And Karina's yeah. family received her recovered remains for a burial back home, which I can't even imagine because, like I said, it mm. was just the top half of her body. And it was just she went to America for this, you know, job and adventure for this summer or whatever, like... And for her to not come home on a plane to tell us all about your time and your adventure, but to come home in a coffin. Yeah. And if you remember, she had written those two letters saying that something happened. I'll tell you more when I get home. And then the one to her sister where she was like, yeah, I think I'm going to cut this short. We have no idea what happened. We have no idea what she wanted to tell them. She never got the opportunity And we don't even know if it has anything to do with her murder or if it was just completely separate. Like, there's just so much mystery around that. I mean, exactly. It it could have been this this person stalking me, or it it could have been I don't know. I realized I don't want to have kids because this is you know that's the thing that happened or whatever. Like, it could have been very much directly related, or it could have nothing to do with it. Yeah. It could just be like, a, I realized I don't like America. This place fucking sucks and I want to come home. And these are all the reasons, but I'm not going to write them out in a letter. I'll just tell you in person. Like, that could be it too. Like, we have no idea. So the Fenway apartment building ended up installing cameras around the dumpster where she was found. But other than that, the dump site still resembles how it did in 1996. Looks exactly the same. So 24 years later, this crime very much lives in the minds of Bostonians. And it's one of those infamous unsolved crimes. It seems that whoever killed Karina, they got away with it. They evaded capture. Yeah. I mean, as we've discovered this week, though, or not discovered, but as we've even more realized this week with the Golden State Killer, you can go a very long time thinking you got away with it and not get away with it. That is true. So if if you think about it today, if a woman were to disappear in the heart of Boston, there would be a lot of evidence. Text messages, surveillance video, maybe even some selfies that she took with her friends at the nightclub. And investigators could use that to reconstruct the evening. But in 1996, mm-hmm. that wasn't possible. Those types of evidence didn't exist. And so th- they really had nothing to go off of. I mean, yeah, in my case, we were talking about, you know, hey, y'all, you know, share your location. That, in 1996, there's literally no way other than, hey, I'm going to be at this place. Well, and also, that's it. who's she going to share her location with? The family she works for? She's with all her friends. 
Yeah, that's no, that's true. So homicide prosecutor David Meyer said it's as haunting today as it was 20 years ago, if not more so, because no one has come forward. Because whoever is responsible for this, whether that's one person or more than one person, has apparently not slipped up and said anything to anyone who would have an interest in saying anything. And there's no crime scene. There's no ability to determine with a definitive basis how she was killed, why she was killed, where she was killed. Never mind who killed her. So that's Shit. that's a horrifying paragraph to say. This case is just as mysterious today as it was the day they discovered her body. Everything they have done, they have not gotten a single step forward. And that's definitely why this case haunts Boston to this day. And that is the murder of Karina Homer. Damn. So sorry to get super insanely literal with the missing pieces, but you ended up going down the same path. And I am beyond horrified in the similarities in our cases. Yeah, we, why, okay, why do we always do that? And I know you're the person who usually brings that up, but damn, because I, for my case, when you told me the topic, I had an idea in my head of a couple cases that, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I've heard of this, or if I'd, you know, seen a a case that was based off it from like a Bones or a CSI or something. Right. But, you know, cases where, like, someone was decapitated and they weren't able to be identified until their head was found. Like, that was the route I was going. Did find a couple cases like that. Did not want to do. I was like, nope, these are, nope, too much. So then I found this case and obviously I was like, oh, shit, I remember this. But I'm just like, the the fact that we have cases that have so much more similarities than just the topic I mean, both our cases, our victims are women who are out socializing, like doing doing shit on the town. Living life. And living life. Exactly. Are murdered and then are dismembered and then disposed of in trash cans or like garbage receptacles. Like, no, absolutely. I refuse. This episode, I refuse. This ended up being so much more intense than I thought it was because originally... When I thought of this topic, it was more of like when there's like a really big missing piece, like if they had Mm -hmm. this one piece of evidence, if they had that DNA, but then unfortunately we think about that and that could apply to so many different cases. Yeah. I mean, I remember when you told me the case, my first thought went to, oh, so like a case where like such and such happened and then in 1971 they disappeared and then we don't know. But in 1996, they were found, and they'd only been dead two years, and what's this missing chunk of time? Like, that's where my mind went when you first told me. There's a lot of different ways it could be taken, and we both took it the super fucking literal dark way. Ugh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, you know, that that case, that episode, damn. Damn. Missing pieces two cases this was an intense episode and we've had quite a few intense episodes lately but i think intense in different ways like we're kind of hitting all the facets of intense if uh all the we got a prism of intensity and it's shooting out a a rainbow and we're just going roy g biv down the line on the intensities dude that is like the perfect metaphors yeah it's the perfect description for this podcast (laughs) a prism of intensity honestly merch 
Oh, shit, we can make it like that. What's that? Oh, some of our listeners and maybe you, Brittany, are going to hate me for this. The the band. Was that Pink Floyd? The shirt with the prism and the rainbow? Is that them? Dark Side of the Moon? Yes, that's Pink Floyd. Okay, I, I think... Uh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh... But yeah, that, but Prism of Intensity. Anywho, if y'all have enjoyed this Prism of Intensity, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing what y'all have to say. We love hearing what y'all think. I mean, literally every time we see a new review pop up, we text one another. Like, whoever sees it first, we're like, ah, did you see it? And we're like, yes, I already saw it and read it. I love it. It's one of our favorite things, and we love hearing from y'all. So yeah, make sure to send us a review give us those five stars if you loved us and yeah also be sure to like and follow us on social we're on instagram facebook and twitter you can hop on over see all the wines that we do see us talk to us all the things just hop on over to social all the things all the things yeah and with that this is blood and wine signing off xoxo bye you guys bye bye